Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be having our long-awaited panel on weird Western books and comics. But first up, we've got an interview with author and puppeteer Mary Robinette Kowal. Her glamorous series has been described as Jane Austen with magic. The fourth book, Valor and Vanity, is out now. And now, here's our interview with Mary Robinette Kowal. All right, so we're here with Mary Robinette Kowal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and so your new book is called Valor and Vanity, and it's the fourth book in the glamorous series. So why don't you just tell us a bit about that series? Sure. The Glamorous Histories are set in the Regency. They take place between 1814 and 1818, and they're basically Jane Austen with magic. So uh, pretty dresses, and then the magic glamour, which is where the series gets its name, is kind of like a painting with light. It's very it's creating illusions, and it's it's largely useless, which is why it's something that young ladies of quality are taught to do. The fourth book is sort of a little more swashbuckling than your usual Jane Austen fare. We've we've actually described it as Jane Austen writes Ocean's 11 with magic. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a heist novel of manners. Mhm. Yeah, and I guess the different books in the series have all kind of been in a different subgenres, right? Mhm. Yeah. I kind of joke a little bit like the the fourth one is or the third one is um uh, secretly it's a political thriller disguised as a regency romance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was you know, I was really interested in uh, reading about the the second one in the series. It's kind of a spy thriller and features Napoleon and and stuff like that. Yeah, but again, it's it is a little quieter probably than most fantasy fans are expecting when they go in because my main character, particularly at the beginning of the book, is the product of an English country drawing room. So she's she's newly married. She's a little naive. Um, and although she's very smart, she's dealing with a lot of stuff she hasn't dealt with before. So the the first part of the book has a drawing room feel in part because she is not in on the spying that's happening. And then uh, once she understands what's going on, we we get progressively more swashbuckling as the book goes on. Uh-huh. And I was reading that you also deal with the Luddite uprising, and that's kind of interesting to me. What's your take on the Luddites? Sure. Well, the Luddites are in Without a Summer, which is the third book. One of the things that I found really interesting about the Luddites as I was researching was I think of them as being people who are afraid of technology, which is not actually the case. The Luddites were protesting a social shift. So basically, up until weaving machines came into being, weaving was something that was done at home. It was skilled labor. And it was something the whole family was involved in. And then you would take your wares to something that was called a factory, but it's not like what we think of as a factory today. It was where people would collect things, and it had multiple people working for it, but you would work at home and bring things in. The weaving machines meant that suddenly you had you had to work outside the home, so childcare became an issue, and it was something that unskilled labor could do. So it was a huge disruption to the life of the Luddites. So what I'm doing with this is I'm playing with uh, actual Luddites and because they were 
they, this is the tail end of the Luddite movement. Um, but I'm also using their uprisings as a model for something that the cold mongers are going through. And cold mongers are glamorists who can chill things. They can't completely freeze something, except under very rare special circumstances, but they can cool things. And they're usually employed in greengrocers and things like that. And there's a conflict regarding their employment. So I was basing a lot of that on what happened with the Luddite movement. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say in an interview that when the cold mongers come into this, that reveals that the series is almost science fiction in a way. Yeah. If anyone is paying attention um, to what I'm doing, what, what I have going on is that the glamorists are manipulating the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. And specifically what the cold mongers are doing is a thermodynamic transfer. Um, but I have to communicate all of that without using a lot of those words because I do try to be period correct in language. But yeah, I have a scientific basis for everything that is going on in the magic. Um, although if you look too deep at a certain point, it, it does fall apart because, you know, magic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I mean, um, you know, obviously I know a lot of science fiction fans, and there seems to be an enormous crossover between science fiction fans and Jane Austen fans. Uh, do you agree with that? Or what's your take on that? I, I do. I think part of it is because Jane Austen, I, I should say that I think there's a crossover between fans of a lot of different things and Jane Austen fans. Uh, one of the things that Jane Austen is really good at is the small telling detail. And a lot of times that is that small telling detail is something that science fiction uh, spins on. You know, that one thing that you thought wasn't very important, but it turns out to be the MacGuffin of all MacGuffins. So I think there's a fondness for that. And of course, uh, she's heavily character-based. So it's, it's very easy to get sucked into what is going on with the characters. And that's kind of appealing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And then um, let's talk a little bit more about this newest book, Valor and Vanity, which uh, takes place in Venice. And actually, the last uh, we, we, I just interviewed Christopher Moore in our last episode, and his book, The Serpent of Venice, also takes place in Venice. So it's kind of an interesting coincidence. But uh, why did you decide to go to Venice for this book? To be honest, one of the reasons that I decided to go to Venice was because of a mistake that I made in Glamour and Glass, which is that I sent them to Brussels to which I'd never been, and where everyone speaks French, and I don't speak French. And um, so I decided that with this book, I was, by God, going to send them to a country where I spoke the language, because I do the audiobooks. I knew that I wanted them to be working with glass, which meant that I had two choices. One was Bohemia, and the other was Venice. Of the two... Um, I don't speak Czech, wasn't going to learn it. <laughs> so um, so they went to Venice. Uh, the other thing that Venice offered, and I didn't know this when I started researching, I did not know that Lord Byron was in Venice living there and had been for a couple of years in 1817, which is when the book takes place. And as soon as I saw that, it was, uh, I, I pretty much changed a lot of my plot on the spot because how can you not use Lord Byron? He's an amazing historical figure. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, maybe for people who aren't as familiar with him, do you want to just say what it is about him that makes him so attractive as a character? Sure. Lord Byron is the prototypical brooding hero. He is the archetype from which the fictional ones kind of stem. 
he was and still is regarded as one of the best English poets. He was um, a little bit of a playboy. Uh, Carolyn Lamb famously referred to him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He seduced everybody and also got into terrible trouble and and was just reading his letters. He's just an amazing flirt. And he's, of course, a wonderful wordsmith. So he's a very dynamic figure. Went off and and, uh, sailed with pirates, although he denied it, while also saying that he did all at the same time. Uh, Well, could you say a bit more about that? What's the pirate part? So uh, he has a poem called The Corsair. And it's this wonderful epic about uh, Barbary Corsairs, the pirates. There are several references that Byron makes in letters, uh, in, in essays, in which he hints that he actually went and spent some time with them and that that was how he knew what to write. But at the same time, he absolutely says, no, of course I, of course I didn't spend time with pirates. That's absurd. So he's, he's, he, he's an unreliable narrator of his own life. Hmm. Well, I mean, you're, the, the opening chapters of this book involve a pirate attack. So did you go try, did you uh, live with pirates for a time to research I this? did. I, I did live with pirates for, um, for a number of years. Uh, four years I spent on the board of uh, the science fiction and fan. Oh, I mean, um, no, there's no piracy involved there. We are, uh, yeah, I'll just, la. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and another thing in this involving Byron in this book is that you, um, you have an actual poem, an original Lord Byron poem that you wrote for this book. Tell us about that. Oh, that was a pain in my hiney. Um, it is, so because I'm dealing with an alternate history, I, I actually had a Lord Byron poem that um, that I was planning on using, and I had written this entire scene around the poem, and I had the date wrong that it came out. And for the scene to function, I needed it to be something that he was had not yet published, and I I had the publication date wrong, so I needed to replace it. But I had this whole scene built around it, so um, I couldn't find anything suitable from before eighteen seventeen. So I took an existing poem and used that as my template and wrote a Byronic poem. There are still sections in it that are, that are actually Byron, so I can't claim to have written it from scratch. But it was really interesting to sit down and break apart how he used language, um, the rhyme structure, and, uh, and the meter was... I don't normally work with poetry, so it was really interesting exercise for me, and probably the hardest thing to write in the entire novel. Hmm. I mean, could you articulate how anything that you uh, noticed about how to impersonate Lord Byron? Sure. Well, the first thing I did, as I said, I, I used an existing poem as a template. Um, it's much easier to catch the rhythms of someone if you can kind of write on top of what they did. So for um, there's a poem in there called The Glamorists, which I actually based on the prophecy of Dante. Uh, and honestly, one of the reasons I picked that was because the poem that I was replacing uh, and, and the scene was all revolving around Prometheus. And this had some lines about Prometheus in it. 
but the poem starts, well, actually, the poem does not start here. I, I, I use an excerpt, um, and I start in the, with the original poem. The line is, um, many are poets, but without the name for what is posy, but to create. And, uh, and I, and this is an example of, of how I'm overwriting things. Uh, many are glamorists without a claim, yet what is glamour for but to create? So you can see that I'm, I'm very much following his model there. There are places where I have to deviate farther uh, in order to maintain his rhyme structure. He was using something called a terza rima, which means that as he's going through, it's, uh, the rhyme pattern is ABA, and then the next set is BCB. And the next set is CDC. So it, it gets, you can't shift any one line without having this rippling effect through the thing. So there were places where in order to talk about glamour in this, I had to do fairly significant rewrites. What I was looking at with Byron is he, um, he, he'll use alliteration, uh, transformed, transfigurated, He'll do things like that, um, fairly long sentence structures. He's very interesting because the language is not over-labored. Sometimes you'll hit a point and it very much feels like you're reading poetry, no matter, you know, even if you broke it apart into blank verse. But with Byron, it is it absolutely wants to be in the verse, and yet you can also read it kind of straight so he i find him very approachable and um, and just really really lovely use of language hmm. okay so that's how to impersonate lord byron do you have any tips yeah. for impersonating patrick rothfuss <laughs> actually i did exactly the same thing um so you are clearly referring to either the uh the, the twitter extravaganza or the uh Kvothe fan fiction or both um so when I when I was impersonating Pat as part of the the, the real Rothfuss, um, I would take sentences that Pat had actually written about a subject. So someone would tweet at me like, um, uh, "How do you feel about lemonade?" This is not an actual question. And so I would go over to Pat's blog and I would type in "lemonade" to see if Pat had said anything about it. And then I would grab a sentence that he had actually said about lemonade, and I would tweak it a little bit to so that it wasn't precisely what he had said before, but very close. And, uh, and then I would tweak that, or I would just write something, and then if I used any idioms or unusual expressions, I would go back and search to see if he had used it. Um, like, I, I used 50 bajillion, and I went to his site and looked to see how he used large numbers, you know, large imaginary things. And he doesn't use bajillion, but he used, oh, I can't remember what the construction was now. Um, but it was, it was a different construction of that. So I, I used that instead. Um, a lot of it is paying a use, attention to how someone uses punctuation, because punctuation informs where the natural pauses and rhythms of the speech are. And then vocabulary. I, I built a Patrick Rothfuss spellcheck dictionary, hmm. uh, much like my Jane Austen spellcheck dictionary, and it was completely useless because Pat uses all the words. Hmm. Do you maybe just want to explain how that Twitter thing worked for people who... Sure. Pat had not been on Twitter, 
And so over the years, he or his assistants had reserved a Twitter name. And eventually he had six and had also kind of hit the point of, okay, really, I need to be on Twitter. So rather than doing what normal people do, which is just to start tweeting, he ran a contest. It was Pat and five friends. And we were impersonating him over the course of a couple of weeks. And the goal being that all of the people watching the hashtag the real Rothfuss would try to guess which of us was really Pat and then vote on it at the end. And the one of us that got the most votes would get um, $1,000 donated by DAW to the charity of our choice. I won. <laughs> I had 42% of the votes. The next closest Rothfi was uh, Pat himself with 15%. I am unbearably smug about this. <laughs> okay, and then what was the uh, Jane Austen dictionary? So for, for these novels, um, I want the language to be as accurate as possible without being distracting. Because I feel like language reflects culture so I'm trying to use words that were only existing in the culture at the time. So what I did was I took the complete works of Jane Austen, I ran it through a concordance engine and came up with a list of unique words, and that created a spell check dictionary. I, I mean, I just I use it as my spell check dictionary. It flags every word that Austen didn't use. And then those words I go and I look up to see if they existed in the language and if the meaning had shifted. I don't confine myself to only words that Austin used, but I do try to confine myself to only words that exist in the time period that I'm writing. Um, I give myself a little bit of flex because a lot of times words will come into the language before they appear in print. Um, but it's interesting to see the things that, um, that, that there just aren't words for yet. And, and then also words that are completely period correct that I cannot use because they sound like an anachronism, like electricity. Can't use it. Jane Austen did. <laughs> I can't. I've also heard that different slang expressions go in and out of style. And so yeah. like fly, you know, like that's so fly is actually is fairly archaic. But, you know, if you were to use it, people wouldn't believe you. Yeah, absolutely. Dude is from the early to mid-1800s. It's not in yet, really, as a, a word in Austen's time, but Victorian, you will run across that in Victorian literature. Look at that dude standing on the street. <laughs> um, and then speaking of cool stuff like that you can't use, tell us about the steampunk wheelchair. <laughs> oh, the steampunk wheelchair. Uh, um, in the fifth book of Noble Family, I had someone... Um, I, I had the need for a wheelchair, and so I was researching to see what they were called, actually. Was it a wheelchair? Was it a wheeled chair? What, invalid chair? What was it called? Uh, wheeled chair is the, the answer, mostly. But while I was researching that, I came across a chair by Merlin. And, and yes, an inventor named Merlin. So immediately I'm like, hmm. well, that's going to be tricky to use. Hmm. And the, the language about this wheelchair includes the small steam engine attached to it. I'm like, what? Because this is coming, this is something that was invented in 1811. 1811. And the problem is, even though it is, of course, completely accurate to use it, even though I could come up with 
a way to explain why this existed in the world so that it, it didn't seem like I was throwing, you know, just so it didn't seem like an anachronism, even though I could make it seem like not an anachronism. There was no way I could keep it from looking like steampunk. Because the moment we see a steam-powered, right now, the moment we see a steam-powered gadget that is not something that is in our, uh, in our, our you know, the, the common knowledge vocabulary, we will assume that the author has made it up and that it's a steampunk invention. And, and it'll, it'll kick it into a different genre. And these books are not in the steampunk genre. So I, I was like, I can't, I cannot use this. As a, as a weird trivia note, the first automobile, the first self-powered, horseless carriage, steam-powered, was in the 1750s. Hmm. Also, can't use it. Totally looks like steampunk. <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned the, the fifth book in the series uh, of Noble Family. Is there anything you want to, which is not out yet, uh, is there anything you want to say about that, uh, that upcoming book? Um, it's, we, I don't have a good elevator pitch for it. Um, I mean, the thing I say is, uh, you know, Jane Austen takes a walk on the dark side, uh, which is so misleading for what the book is. I've, I've also joked that I appear to have invented the genre Regency Grimdark. Um, basically in the book, uh, my main characters go to Antigua to a slave plantation so it is dealing with um, slavery and race and uh, lots of family issues. And, um, and I, I don't pull any punches. So it's, you know, it is Regency Grimdark in a lot of ways. <laughs> but there's still, there's still the love story. There's still humor. Um, you know, I, I hope from my beta readers, I think that all of the things that keep people coming back to the books are still there. It's just you know, it's, it's a grim topic. Mm. I mean, what do you think about the way that Jane Austen handles race and how are you handling it yourself? Actually, the interesting thing about Jane Austen, um, people tend to, from a modern lens, think that Jane Austen didn't deal with race at all or slavery, which is not true. Thing about Jane Austen is that she was writing for an audience of her contemporaries, so she could do references to contemporary events, and people would totally know what she was talking about. For instance, in Emma, she talks about uh, Mrs. Elton and Mrs. Elton's father, and the line is something like, "Was a merchant, if we can call him that, of Bristol." Now, anyone in Jane Austen's time period would know that Bristol is famous for being a slave market. So she's making these very pointed references to things like that all through the books. Um, she does a lot of social commentary. Her, her last book, San, uh, Sanditon, which was unpublished, the most eligible young lady in there is Miss Lamb, who is, um, uh, using the parlance of the day, a mulatto from the West Indies. And there's a lot of West Indian characters in the novel, all of which are um, seen as people who are high in stature, who have who are desirable to have in town because they have money. And there is the the racism that we know today and our interpretations of it is very, very different 
from the way it actually played out, which is not to say that there was not racism in the period, but it doesn't play the same way. It doesn't happen the same way that it does uh, in the contemporary United States. So, I mean, when, when you say, uh, you know, somebody at the time would know that Bristol had this implication, how do you know that? Is there an annotated version or do you just know um, that much about? At this point, I've just done a heck of a lot of research. Uh-huh. Um, uh, there, there's a couple of actually, there's a couple of really good annotated editions if you're interested in such things. Um, uh, the Harvard, the, the one I recommend is uh, Harvard Press has some annotated they're, they're doing all of them, uh, the annotated Austin series, and they're large, beautifully illustrated books and very well annotated um, and uh, highly recommend those. Mm-hmm. And so, but so then when you're writing of Noble Family for a more contemporary audience, do you, do you feel uh, that you need to handle that differently then? No. Um, well, yes, this is a yes and a no. Um, I am not going to alter the uh the the views of the time period you know like i i try to give my characters viewpoints that are consistent with the period in which they live what i have to do though is help my readers unlearn some of the things that they know for instance um one of the things that i had in in reaction to a couple of early drafts of um in actually without a summer and end of noble family was a reaction to the fact that I have, um, I have people of color and I, and I had a number of people saying, you know, that, uh, Jane and Vincent appeared to have very modern views about slavery and, and they don't at the time. Um, the abolition movement was very big in Britain and probably slavery would have been overturned a good 20 or 30 years before it was if if it hadn't been for parliamentary mismanagement. But people were doing protests. Um, and again, you'll see this in, uh, I think it's in Northanger Abbey. Um, people were doing protests where they wouldn't use cane sugar to protest the slave trade. So there were all sorts of things um, going on. What I had to do in order to explain that to a modern reader was that I couldn't rely on them to know that. So I had to insert additional material, the kinds of things that Austin wouldn't have to do. Uh, things like, you know, uh, talking about how they had signed the abolitionist petitions along with most of England. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So tell us about the Doctor Who cameo in uh, Valor and Vanity. Well, there's a Doctor Who cameo in all of the novels because I am a giant geek. <laughs> the one in Valor and Vanity is perhaps my my most favorite because it is so completely natural. Lord Byron had a traveling companion that was um, Dr. Polidori. And in his letters and journals, uh, and, and Lord Byron was an inveterate letter writer, in his letters and journals, he refers to Dr. Polidori frequently as just the doctor. Mm-hmm. So it seems clear to me what's going on here. They have, as I said, Lord Byron was this really you know, he wrote letters and journals all the time. There's a two-week period in which they are more or less unaccounted for. And I'm like, well, obviously. <laughs> obviously, there is some time travel happening there. Um, and then Dr. Polidori mysteriously dies. Oh, and, and Lord Byron's father was Captain Mad Jack. So I'm like, hello, <laughs> could we have some more references? 
Um, so when when I was writing this and, you know, it was clear who my Doctor Who cameo was going to be in this particular novel. It's Dr. Polidori, uh, who's Il, Il Datore in the novel. And then I had something that was really fun happen, which is that um, I'm friends with Paul Cornell, who's actually written for the television show. And he was joking about one of the previous ones and, and had said something about how he would, you know, we, we had some joke about how he should tweak the dialogue for me. And uh, when I wrote this, I'm, I was like, were you serious about being willing to tweak dialogue? And he said, yes. So I sent him those scenes. And um, in this particular incarnation, uh, the doctor is an odd young man with a fez. And uh, so he he Matt Smithed them for me <laughs> and uh, sent it over and said, you'll probably have to tone this down a little bit. And he was right. I did have to pull it back a little bit, but not as much as you would think. <laughs> Just had to get rid of a couple of pieces of archaic language. Mm. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, speaking of that, of the language like that, you mentioned that you did the audiobook uh, mm -hmm. for this. What, just tell us a little bit about what it's like doing the performance of your own novel. Sure. Well, I, I am an audiobook narrator, so I, I narrate for other people. When I'm narrating my own work, one of the things that I have the luxury of doing, which I don't when I'm recording someone else's, is that if it doesn't play well for audio, um, we can, or if it's just awkwardly phrased and I don't realize it until I'm narrating, I can make changes, which is glorious. And uh, and then we record at a point in the production process where I can go back and make those changes to the print version so that it, is, it matches the audio. And that that's just a, a really lovely thing. The flip side of this is that I will, um, with some of the other books, I have forgotten that I was going to be the one narrating it and um, have put in some things and I hit them in the book and I'm like, Really, Mary? Really? This this seemed like a good idea? Including a song that you don't know in the book? That was a good idea? Because now you have to sing it. Thank you. Um, so, uh, oh, and actually Valor and Vanity was pretty funny because, as I mentioned, I picked it because, in, in part, going to Venice because I'm like, I speak Italian. Thank you. I can actually, I'm not going to struggle. And um, they speak Venetian at this point in history which is not Italian. It's not even a dialect of Italian. People talk about it as being a dialect of Italian, but it's its own language. And so if you were reading the book, you will note, I have a couple of places where Italian phrases are used. Every time someone's talking Venetian, it's, it's all, and he said something very rapid in Venetian that hmm. she could not understand. At no point do I use Venetian except for some names. Hmm. Uh, all right. Well, we have some uh, listener questions for you. So just on that subject, uh, Zach Chapman says that since you're a voice actress and podcaster, he'd like to hear what are your favorite podcasts and or audiobooks? I'm a big fan of Escape Pod. I really, I like their selection. Um, I think they tend to have good narrators. I very much enjoy that. Uh, in audiobooks, I highly recommend Lainey Taylor's uh, Daughter of Smoke and Bone. Um, there's, I, I'm very picky. I, I actually often will pick books because of the narrator. Um, there are some books that should not be in audio, and, and I'm not going to give you examples of those because that's just mean. Um, 
but the uh, the daughter of Smoke and Bone is phenomenally performed by uh, Christ- Christine Fan. Oh, actually, I don't know how to say her last name. Um, H V A M. She's wonderful, so good, and the book is beautifully written and just it it's a wonderful merging of the two media. Um, Diana Rowland's uh, My Life as a White Trash Zombie again, really well performed, very compelling story. Um, very much like those. Uh, Neil Gaiman's um, Ocean at the End of the Lane. I picked that up. Not I, I was I had heard that he was a good reader. I hadn't actually heard him read before, and his narration of this knocked me out of the park. It was just spot on in terms of the uh, emotional in, um, intimacy. So really, really beautifully done. Yeah, yeah, no, he's amazing. Um, okay, then we have a question from Juan San Miguel. He says he wants to know if you saw the movie Austin, Austin Land and what you think of it. I didn't see it. Have you, Sorry. Have you heard of it? I have. Um, I think I was just traveling when it came out, and I just didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Sounds fun. <laughs> Probably we'll see it at some point. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then Robert Coleman uh, wants me to ask you about the recent Sifwa contretemps uh, regarding women writers in SF and F careers. I don't know how anxious you are to relive any of that, but uh, is there anything you want to say on that subject? Yeah, first of all, um, as someone who used to be an officer, it frustrates me when I see Sifwa's name attached to things that have nothing to do with us. Um, the fact that science fiction and fa- that there is a science fiction and fantasy writer who had opinions about women in science fiction uh, does not make it something that Sifwa did. Um, and in, in this case, Sifwa had nothing to do with it. It didn't appear in any of our um, publications. It was, And I'm, I say ours if I'm still on the board, but as a member, it didn't appear in our publications. It wasn't on our forums. It was not in a Sifwa space. Um, so it bothers me to see our name linked with it when the organization itself is doing a lot of, and for the last several years, has been taking a lot of steps to become more inclusive uh, and to to make the inclusivity more apparent in cases where we have always been welcoming, but perhaps not done such a good job of making sure the door was visibly open. Um, so so that that's thing one. Um, Thing two about women's careers in science fiction, um, frankly, what bullshit. Uh, you know, when you look at the history of science fiction, women have always played an important role. There has been a lot of um, issues with women not being able to identify as themselves as women. Uh, James Tiptree Jr. being a, a prime example of that. And... Um, and some sexism that was inherent in the era, but not necessarily inherent. I don't think it was any more about science fiction and fantasy. I don't think it's any more a part of it than it was about the era in general. Um, so you'll see places where the sexism was apparent and kept the glass ceiling in place. And we're seeing that that change. And we're definitely seeing, you know, there's a higher percentage of women showing up in fiction, uh, in ballots, um, as artists. So we're definitely seeing a change. But again, 
that is not something that I think is inherent to science fiction and fantasy. I don't think there is anything about our genre that requires or encourages sexism. I think that there are, that it is something that is a problem with the larger society and that it is something that we have to be aware of and work against and with, but it is certainly not something that is inherent to our genre. And I think our genre is actually doing a really good job of calling people out on problems and trying to make changes. And thank you for providing me a soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) No no problem. That's what I'm here for. Um, Well, yeah, I I actually just listened. You're one of the hosts of the uh, Writing Excuses podcast. And I just Mm -hmm. listened to your episode on how to have an opinion as a public figure. And I was just wondering if you have any sort of thoughts on when somebody is attacking you online or, you know, when there's trolls and stuff like that, just what are the best approaches for dealing with that? Yeah, um, it depends on the kind of trolling that's going on uh, and 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 each individual person, because a lot of it has to do with how much energy you want to put into it. There are people who attack for the sake of attacking. And I don't think that you need to give those people any energy. And I think that if they're attacking me personally, that I have the privilege of ignoring them, should I choose to. When they're attacking someone else, then it becomes a different thing because I don't think that I, I, while I do have the privilege uh, and, and luxury to ignore something that theoretically doesn't affect me, by remaining silent, I am condoning that behavior. And I'm leaving the person who is being attacked without any any support structure. So it depends on whether you are being attacked or or whether a colleague is being attacked. The other thing is where that attack is coming from. Sometimes people will say things that are sexist or racist, and it comes from a place of um, where they have so taken on the aspects of racism and sexism that are inherent to our society that they don't even realize that it is part of the fabric of the society or or something that they have, they have picked up. Um, So in, in those cases, I think that it is possible to attempt to educate the person and hopefully turn them into an ally that a lot of times they're coming from a place of ignorance. That said, I don't think that anyone is obligated to educate people. It is exhausting and, um, and, and not your job. But if you're interested in trying to change the narrative, uh, then, then looking at where that attack is coming from can be a useful thing if you have the energy. And this, this is one of the really big things. All of this takes time and energy. and as a writer, you're supposed to be writing, and you have to make a choice about where your energy is going to be spent. So sometimes you look at uh, something and think, I'm just going to back away from this. And sometimes you think, this is too important to back away from. I know I'm going to have to sacrifice writing time, but it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, I mean, one possible approach is to form your own insect army, right? Yeah, you can also form your own insect army, which is um, 
something that John Scalzi and I did after uh, someone complained about um, how how all of these new writers were nothing but insects. I'm like, sweetie, everybody's been a new writer at some point. Um, and and John's point was, yeah, and insects kind of will they significantly outnumber you and hmm. will you know eat eat your carcass. Um, so so we formed the insect army, which is basically a way of saying to everyone, look, there's a lot of us and we have each other's backs and you don't have to try to deal with these things all by yourself. And that's, you know, that is about being a good ally and coming to the support of other people. And, you know, with a lot of voices, we can make a difference. All right, great. All right, so let's move on to some other fun topics. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Tell me about the uh, steampunk cruise that you went on. Oh, the steampunk cruise is so much fun. The next one is coming up in 2015. Um, So my books are not not steampunk. Um, They're historical fantasy. And the thing that I really enjoy about the steampunk cruise is that they are very open to other time periods. Um, and and to kind of any sort of playing with time and culture and and sort of genre crossovers, it's basically it's a it's a cruise. I never thought that I would be someone who would say I love going on a cruise, but it's it's like going to a convention at a really high end resort, and every day the front door of the convention center is at a different location. Hmm. Um, which is kind of fantastic. And they've got 3,000 people on the boat, of which on this last cruise, 64 of us were in costume, 64 steampunkers amid a bunch of mundanes. And it was so much fun. It's, um, there's kind of this instant tribe marking that happens when you're walking through the concourse or the promenade and you see someone else who is wearing a beautiful, beautiful costume. And you're like, oh, we're in the same tribe. Hey there. Hmm. So there's this real sense of community, um, interesting topics, uh, some lectures, some workshops. Um, and and then, you know, you can go ashore. Like we went to NASA on this last one. And some people went in their street clothes and some people went in costume. So great opportunities for photos. Um, had high tea at a building from the early 1800s when we were in the Bahamas. It was just, it's so much fun to dress up and spend a week with like-minded people. Mm. Well, so will you be going on if if people want to go on a steampunk cruise with you, will they have, are there any opportunities for that? I am in fact one of the guests of honor on the uh the next one. So the 2015 one when they can go to I think it's steampunkcruise.com. And I saw a video of you singing uh, Roxanne in the voice <laughs> of a puppet. Yeah. You know, there are times when something seems like a good idea and then you realize video <laughs> camera is on. Um, so I'm a professional puppeteer and I was on the cruise and I was in costume and there was karaoke happening. And I had always kind of thought that it would be hilarious to sing Roxanne as if I were a puppet. Um, so I did that while dressed in Regency costume. Because, you know, you do. And someone videotaped it, and it's online. Roxanne, <laughs> you don't have to put out the red light. 
<laughs> That's a really good puppet voice, I have to say. Well, you know. Leave <laughs> that professional. to the professionals, yeah. Yes. Don't try this at home. <laughs> well, yeah, and speaking of puppets, uh, you, all, you, you recently did a Sesame Street puppetry workshop. Tell us about that. That was amazing. So I've been a professional puppeteer for 20-plus years. Uh, these days, most of my time is spent with writing, so I haven't been doing as much puppetry as I like. And this workshop came up. Now, Sesame Street and Henson used to do these workshops every couple of years, but they, they've stopped for, I don't know, probably at least a decade. So this came up. Audition only. They were going to take, um, they took 25 people. Uh, well, two, two sets of two. They did two workshops. Um, so total of 50 people, but 25 in my group. And it was taught by Marty Robinson, who does um, Mr. Snuffleupagus and Telemonstro on Sesame Street. Um, Matt Vogel, who was just, uh, he's a longtime Sesame Street performer um, in his Big Birds understudy um, and, uh, and does other Sesame Street performers. But in the recent Muppet film, he was uh, Constantine, the, uh, the devilish Kermit the Frog lookalike. And then uh, Peter Lentz, who uh, also in the new Muppet film is Walter, uh, who's the main character. And then he was also in Bear in the Big Blue House. So these are, these are really good performers and they're really good teachers. So it was, it was really fun. And we were using actual Sesame Street puppets. You know, I had my hand up a chicken. Hmm. Well, it sounds very different when I said that in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I mean, you've been a, you've had so much experience puppeteering. Can you think of something that you learned that was new at this workshop? Yeah, um, one of the things that Marty had us doing, um, he was having us do this thing where we were. It was well, I mean, I, there were a lot of things that were that I learned that were new. A number of which are difficult to explain. In, in a strictly verbal medium. But Marty was having us do this thing where he was having us pop into frame and out of frame, and it was a focus exercise. And the purpose of the exercise was to... Uh, so focus is what the puppet is looking at. And one of the keys of video puppetry is being able to look directly at the camera. Every puppet has a slightly different focus. Where you are standing in relationship to the camera is going to vary how that focus works. So you cannot rely on mus muscle memory. And when you're doing video puppetry, you're looking at a monitor. And the way I think about it is that the puppet is actually the image on the monitor, and you're using the figure on your hand to manipulate that image. So what you have to do with this exercise is pop the puppet in from the side of the frame, nail the focus directly at the camera, and then go down and pop up again and again, nail the focus and pop in and out. And the goal is to get to a point where it is instinctive. And the thing that Marty said that was kind of a moment of, ah, because it applies to so many different forms of creative endeavor, including fiction, is Marty said, I make the same mistakes you guys do, but I can correct them fast enough that you can't see them most of the time. And that was that was a, a real moment of, oh, okay. This is very much something that is a practice thing and understanding that it's not that he has developed to the point 
that when he pops it in, his focus is always perfect, although it is usually, uh, it is that when it is off, he understands where the problem is and how to fix it so fast that he can do it without it being apparent to someone who doesn't know what he's doing. Hmm. You know, a few years ago, we interviewed Ian McDonald on this show, and he had mm. worked with Sesame Street for a little while. And he said what no one warns you about is how bad those puppets smell on the inside. Have you, uh, is that your experience? Um, puppets in general can, I mean, you're sticking your hand up and, and sweating. Um, you can use Febreze. Um, in the old days, they would use, uh, they'd spritz vodka. Um, that was an, an old trick because it evaporated very quickly and it would, it would kill most germs. Um, but yeah, puppets can get really stinky inside. <laughs> no question. Personal hygiene as a puppeteer is even more important than at a science fiction and fantasy convention. <laughs> um, all right, great. So uh, we're uh, just about out of time here. Do you want to just talk about, do you have any other uh, recent or upcoming projects you want to mention? Uh, yeah, I have a couple of things. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug. Uh, my story, my novelette, uh, Lady Astronaut of Mars, is currently up for Hugo. Um, so I'm going to be going to London for that. Um, and yay, <laughs> Hugo <laughs> nomination. Very exciting. But it's available to read on tour.com. It's called The Lady Astronaut of Mars. Uh, I have two short stories that are coming out this year um, or in the next couple of months. One is uh, Spectrum Magazine. And that's called currently Water Over the Dam. And it's a story about energy. And then I have a hundred and fifty no, hundred and thirty-five word short story for um popular science. Uh that's in which I'm being paired with an artist and we're both exploring the idea of food. Uh and then, you know, just more novels, working on the next novels and um more fiction. Could you give us a sneak preview of the 135-word story? Like, just give us the first eight words or something? Yeah, sure. Give me a second to uh, grab that. As long as that doesn't contain any spoilers. It's 135 words. Everything is a spoiler. <laughs> um, I was very proud of myself for being able to pull off a story with a beginning, middle, and an end in 135 words. Did they, was that the assignment from? The assignment was to write a story that was between 10 and 150 words around the idea of food and that it needed to be science fiction. Um, that was, that was it. Uh, so this is the first sentence of a story that's 135 words. Renee scowled at the vertical garden lining the promenade of the space station. Okay, great. I can't wait for the other 120 odd words. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Mary Robinette Kowal. Everyone go check out her Hugo-nominated short story, the or novelette, I think, The Lady Astronaut of Mars. And her most recent novel is called Valor and Vanity. So Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Mary Robinette Kowal for joining us on the show. Okay, so some of you may remember that back in episode 90, our friend Rajan Khanna joined us to discuss weird Western movies. And at that time, we said we were planning to do a follow-up panel talking about weird Western books and comics. Well, it took us almost a year, but we're finally getting around to that. 
And it works out that this is the perfect time to be covering that topic, since our producer, John Joseph Adams, just released an anthology of weird Western stories called Dead Man's Hand. So we'll be talking about that as well. And of course, no discussion of a John Joseph Adams anthology would be complete without the man himself. And so I'm joined today by my good friend and longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other short fiction anthologies, including the recent trilogy, The Apocalypse Triptych. So, John, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. And also back with us today is Rajan Khanna, making his fourth appearance on the show. His Weird West story Card Sharp appeared in John's anthology The Way of the Wizard, and a sequel story, Second Hand, appears in Dead Man's Hand. Raj is also hard at work on a novel set in the same world, and his first novel, Falling Sky, will be out in October from Pyre Books. So, Raj, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today for the very first time is Fred Van Lenty. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of comics such as Marvel Zombies and Odd is on Our Side, which he wrote with Dean Kuntz. He also co-wrote the original graphic novel Cowboys and Aliens, which was adapted into a feature film starring Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig. His short story Never Sleeps appears in Dead Man's Hand. So, Fred, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, great. And so I think we're going to start out talking about weird Western comics. And so Fred's obviously the guy to talk to about this. So why don't you just start out and tell us a little bit about what is sort of the current state of weird Westerns in comics today? They're pretty popular. Uh, The Western genre in general is doing very well. You know, uh, probably the best known one is Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt's The Six Gun, which is about... uh, uh, it's it's uh, less horror. It's more sort of a supernatural adventure of people trying to find these uh, pistols who uh, combine sort of herald the apocalypse. But uh, there's a lot lot of other westerns. There's a great uh, post apocalyptic western that's super popular right now called East of West, written by Jonathan Hickman and drawn by my good buddy Nick Dragata. Uh, Emma Rios and Kelly Sue Duconic do a, a, a western called Pretty Deadly. For Image, that's about, I, as I understand it, I've not read that one, but that is about the daughter of death, who's a gunslinger. Um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty, the Western and weird Westerns in general are pretty robust comics genre right now. Mm-hmm. And Raj, you're a big comic book fan, right? Do you have any any uh, contributions here? Well, I mean, I, I definitely enjoy The Sixth Gun, and I just started reading East of West, and that that's really great, too. I mean, Jonathan Hickman's a great writer. Um, I got into weird Western comics through the uh, Jonah Hex comics, specifically the ones done by uh, Joe Lansdale and Tim Truman back in the 90s, I guess it was, like I think 93, 94, the first one came out. The The Jonah Hex stuff was mostly horror-based, you know, zombies and things like that. Um, Six Gun uses a lot more fantastical elements, and things like East of West use a lot more science fictional elements. So I, I like seeing those kind of influences come in, um, or you know, even Cowboys and Aliens, obviously science fictional elements. So um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, in our last episode, in our last Weird Western panel, we talked about movies and and TV shows a little bit. Do you guys? Um, what do you think that these comics offer that you can't get in the movies? Drawings. word word balloons (laughs) word balloons well there's an old saying in the comics industry which is that you know movies no matter how good the cgi gets will always be constrained to some degree by budget Mm -hmm. but in comics 
drawing a guy walking down the street and drawing a guy drawing a massive space battle with stuff blowing up everywhere and 50 different kinds of aliens and everything leaping all over the place cost the same, mm-hmm. you know? And just as someone, you know, who, who, who has made a living in comics for a long time. I mean, whenever we get into the discussions of what comics can do versus movies and prose and whatever, we should never forget the distinctiveness of, uh, the artist's style, you know, mm-hmm. um, what Brian Hurd or Tim Truman or Jack Jackson, who I forgot to mention before, who, is one of my big influences who was one of the first underground comics creators and did some of the earliest weird Westerns and comics. There was, he did a great Lovecraftian graphic novel in 89 called the secret of San Saba that I wrote about, uh, for a piece that John had us, has us, uh, dead man's hand contributors do for the Huffington post. Um, that was about this, uh, this, this, this is early, early Westerns, right? So you had the, uh, conquistadors in Texas, you know, it, it sort of answers the sort of question of why were all these settlers looking for gold and silver in North America when we don't have a lot of that necessarily? It's like we don't have towns built from silver, but they found like this Lovecraftian monster that basically pooped silver. <laughs> and that was the source of the silver. And so it sort of drove everybody crazy. It was a great book. I lent it to somebody in the 90s and I've never seen it again. And my, uh. heart, has been, my heart has been crushed. <laughs> uh, so Jackson... And Ann Jackson did a adaptation in the early 90s of Joe R. Lansdale's Dead in the West that was really terrific. And, and both he and Tim Truman share this kind of gritty style. Brian has a slightly more cartoony style in Six Gun. And I think that what draws readers of comics more than anything else is the line and the style of the artist himself. And that simply can't be replicated in any adaptation. Yeah, I, when I picked up the Six Gun for the first time, I wasn't, you know, I was I was happy to see a weird western, but I was skeptical because, you know, I hadn't mm. seen one in a while. But um, and and his Brian Hurt's art style is very, I guess, more simple and less gritty, I suppose, as compared to like a Tim Truman. But um, what I appreciated about that and about any of these really good examples is them one nailing the details you know that the, that the guns look like the guns that they would actually use that the horses look like horses that the, the the costumes that they wear um actually you know evoke the time period but what i really like about the six gun art style especially is when i think about it is the color that they use in that also so the colorist gets a lot yes. of uh you know i think credit too and it's not the typical washed out tans and browns that you associate with westerns there's some really deep colors but i think that it really works for that series okay cool well i mean fred uh, raj mentioned cowboys and aliens and obviously you know something about that right do you just tell us i mean a lot of our listeners have probably seen the movie but do you want to tell us just how you went about creating the graphic novel and maybe how it was different from the movie sure uh i had written uh my first comic was called tranquility it was a uh, a political thriller set on a moon base in the not so near future. And it had been optioned by a company called platinum studios. And so they hired me to, they had this concept called Cowboys and aliens. They basically hired me to write a script about, and I did that in 2001. And, uh, they had gone through a couple iterations in the nineties. Platinum was founded by a guy who ran a, uh, combo company in the eighties and nineties called Malibu who were ultimately bought by Marvel, but before that they published a comic called Men in Black, which obviously mm-hmm. became a very successful uh, movie series. 
So the guy um, decided to sort of go out with other properties, and one of them was Cowboys and Aliens, which they really didn't have much more to other than the title. So I wrote a graphic novel based on it um, that was sort of PG-13, or at least PG, um, that had a lot of sort of humor in it. Like, I, I based it on sort of movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, um, films that were fairly serious and had great action set pieces, but were funny sort of when they wanted it to be. Um, the problem they always had uh, getting Cowboys and Aliens off the ground was uh, the Will Smith movie Wild Wild West, <laughs> which was a massive bomb. And so they kind of wanted to strip so they sold the movie sort of based on my script, and but then they hired another guy, a uh, nice guy from, uh, I think, the Edmonton, Canada area, Andrew Foley, to sort of come in and kind of strip out a lot of the dialogue. And so that's sort of the version that was eventually published in 2006. Um, bizarrely, by that point, I was sort of the best-known person because I'd gone on to write Marvel comics and do a bunch of other stuff. And so I was sort of the best-known person attached to the comic, at least. So my name got kind of uh, associated with it, even though uh, it was a very weird experience for me reading the comic because it was my story mm. but with like all of the humor taken out. Hmm. So it was like, it was almost like watching like a dubbed movie, you know, <laughs> like something that's been entirely looped. Uh, and then the movie came out and it was kind of overly serious and they got destroyed by the Smurfs in the opening weekend and, <laughs> the director quit and stopped making a Hollywood movie, so it's, it 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 was kind of sort of an interesting thing. Uh, and my my book was the aliens actually were characters and they had dialogue and they had factions within themselves and we had a lot of Native American characters. Um, and then the film, I noticed they got rid of almost all the Indians. Um, the aliens were sort of H.R. Geigery kind of nondescript aliens. They retained an idea that I threw out um, very early on that the aliens came to Earth after gold, which still seems nuts to me. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, in the book, the aliens crash land and the sort of TikTok of the story is, is they are they need to a build a beacon and then to sort of, you know, summon help from the home world and an invasion force and they need basically the earth to revolve to the correct position before they can set up the beacon. So that's the, you know, uh, that's the time. That's the stopwatch on the heroes to, to stop them from doing that. Um, so it's, it's been sort of a bizarre experience because I, uh, because uh, of Cowboys and Aliens, I've gotten all sorts of wonderful opportunities, like getting to write these short stories for John, which has been hugely rewarding and a lot of convention invitations and stuff. But uh, it's definitely something I, I personally am kind of alienated from just because the process was such a huge clusterfuck. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing we talked about in our last panel was just how uh, bad a lot of the weird Western movies are. Right. Uh, do, do you think that weird Westerns in comics have uh, have sort of had more luck? Yeah, I mean, I don't I mean, I guess, it. I you know. I mean, you know, it begins with the cinematic genius that is Billy the Kid versus Dracula, you know, it <laughs> sort of uh, comes up to the present day. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I can't really think off the top of my head of a a, a, a Western, a traditional Western that really succeeds on film as a weird Western. I mean, the, I, I can think of something like 
Near Dark, which is a terrific movie and is set in the West and has a lot of Western, you know, motifs to it, although it, it's set in the, that present day of the 80s. Um, yeah, nothing really leaps uh, to mind, honestly. Have you seen The Burrowers? Uh, I have not. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about that in our panel. It's uh, it's by JT Petty, um, and uh, he's uh, he's actually he's written some uh, fiction as well, and uh, and he's married to Sarah Langan, who's a horror writer. So he's like sort of one of our people. Oh, cool. Uh, but but yeah, but he's actually making. I've been um, to Sarah's house. Films. Oh, you have? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I my best. She's best friend with my best friend. Oh, okay, gotcha. Well, I don't. I don't personally don't know her very well. Right. Um. Actually, when I was doing uh when I was doing Dead Man's Hand. Uh, you know, because JT did the Burrowers, one of the uh, I invited him to write a story for it, um, and I invited Sarah, and they actually decided to do like this uh, collaborative thing where they were each going to write a story and they were going to be connected. Um, and unfortunately, they, so they wrote their stories, and I love them, right? But they, I didn't really feel like they were westerns. It's like uh, it was sort of like transposing some western elements, but to a modern setting, and it just it didn't feel enough to me like it was actually a western. Right. Um, so I actually ended up uh, running them in Lightspeed, and and so you know uh, anybody who's listening who wants to go read them, you can go check them out in Lightspeed. Uh, they're called uh, uh, they're they're called Family Teeth. Uh, the, the the two of them together are called Family Teeth, and then they each have a different title. But then uh, you know J T Petty and Sarah Langan. Uh, I think it was December 2012 or so, somewhere around there that we ran them. Uh, but uh, they're great, great stories. It's just that, uh, yeah, they just didn't really feel like enough like a Western to me, um, which was, you know, one of the things that was super important to me when I was doing the book uh, is to make sure that every story was like a legit Western. You know, um, I, I didn't want any, I didn't want any sort of nod, nod, wink, wink sort of things like, well, if you squint at it in the right way, it's a Western. But, you know. All right, cool. So why don't we move on to fiction then? So, uh, John, in, you mentioned your anthology, Dead Man's Hands, and in the introduction to that, I have a little quote I want to read from that. So you say, mm -hmm. quote, The origins of the genre can be traced perhaps all the way back to the 1930s with the works of Robert E. Howard, but it was Joe R. Lansdale's acclaimed novel Dead in the West, 1986, that truly blazed a trail. The book, which features the gunslinging Reverend Jebediah Mercer, is considered by many the definitive example of weird Western literature and consequently helped define the genre. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about Dead in the West and why it's so important to the weird Western genre? Well, I mean, it was like I said, it was it was one of those books that just sort of blazed the trail. It's like, you know, the weird Western wasn't new at the time, per se, but uh, it just made this. In, but the book just made this indelible impression on readers. And it just really is. I think it, I really feel like it established the weird West as a thing. Um, and so it's like sometimes this happens in, in genres where, you know, it's sort of been there along, all along, or at least there's been examples of it for a long time, but it's not until there's that one thing that comes out and just does it like so perfectly that it really sets off other people uh, writing about it and whatnot. Um, although, Raj, you, you just wrote about this a little bit in the uh, uh, for that Huffington Post piece Fred mentioned. You want to you want to talk about it a bit uh, since you're a huge fan as well? Yeah, you know, the first time I ever encountered Joe Lansdale was at a convention. I think it was World Fantasy in Austin, which was, I don't know how many years ago. But he was reading, and I only knew him by reputation, and I thought, I'm going to go listen. Um, I, I guess, well, I knew him from Jonah Hex. I think that's why I went to go hear him read his fiction. But um, And I don't remember exactly which story he read, but I'm pretty sure it was one of the the um, the Jebediah Mercer stories. But just hearing him read, especially, first of all, he has, you know, he's from Texas, so I guess he has that accent. But just that voice in the fiction came through also through him reading it. And it just felt like, you know, certain people when they write, they just write with that kind of authority of, of that time and that place. 
And, and he has that, I think. I think that's, you know, even just the Jonah Hex stuff, which uh, I just reread before we did this, the, at least Tugan Mojo, he, you know, he, he gets the language, he gets the, the kind of beats, the, the, the pacing and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, I think horror and Westerns are a natural, natural fit. And so, you know, his, his horror pedigree comes into play and, and, uh, you know, like it's all the elements that you want to see in a Western, um, but then, you know, elevated to this, this place of, you know, delight, I guess, (laughs) um, you know, like, like basically all the, all the, like zombies and Westerns just seem like a match that, that, that works so well. Um, but you know, anyone could write zombies in, in the wild west and it wouldn't be a Joe Lansdale story. Like I, I really mm-hmm. think it's his voice that distinguishes his stories from other people's. It's funny, you know, I read his story in Dead Man's Hands, and the whole time I was thinking, Oh my god, this reminds me so much of the Robert E. Howard story, The Horror Beneath the Mound. <laughs> and then I get to the end and it says this story is dedicated to Robert E. Howard. And I was like, Oh yeah, okay. Wasn't just my imagination. Yeah, yeah, and actually, uh, you know, again, this, this, the Suffering Post piece that we did, uh, um, you know, I, uh, Joe Lansdale talks about the works of Robert E. Howard in general, and, and yeah, he just specifically calls out Horror from the Mound, just like, you know, that was a tribute to that, so, um, you know. Uh, Wasn't there an H.G. Wells story called Kingdom of the Spiders? Isn't that technically a Western? Am I remembering that correctly, or am I not remembering that that story correctly? Uh, of, I don't know. I don't know that one off the top of my head. I'm sort uh, of desperately possible. googling it while I'm talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as uh, Joe Lansdale goes, um, uh, while Fred googles that, uh, you know, a dead. Uh, there's a story called Dead Men's Road uh, that's in uh, in in my anthology, The Living Dead, and and you know, it's a zombie story, obviously being in The Living Dead, but I mean, it's also you know, a weird western. And uh, and it's another one of the the Reverend Mercer stories. And uh, and and so actually anybody who wants to check those out, um, Tachyon Books or Tachyon Publications actually just did a collection called Dead Men's Road, which includes that story as well as some of the other Mercer stories. And it also includes the full text of uh, Dead in the West, um, or at least the print version does. And then the ebook version doesn't because of rights restrictions, whatever. Uh, but uh, but, you you know, you can get if you want an ebook, you can get the you can get Dead in the West separately. But um yeah that's definitely a great book to check out if you want to um get a good sampling of of the best uh joe lansdale weird westerns um so i highly recommend that of course it doesn't include the new one that's only in dead man's hands so you'll need to get that too (laughs) see see fred did you ever find uh anything about that hg wells uh no all i'm finding is about the crappy william shatner movie from 1977 that is Hmm. you know a sort of maybe not an adaptation of it um but is set in the present no it's uh if i remember correctly i remember it scaring the crap out of me as a kid i read it in some anthology in the 80s it's uh two guys in the west somewhere stumble upon shockingly a valley full of giant spiders uh mm-hmm. as the title would imply and i think it you can consider it a western because you know he wrote it in the late 19th century and they're in the west and they're on horses and so forth but you know mm-hmm. uh uh yeah it's, yeah. it's scary it's good mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, Brian Keene's story in The Living Dead 2 is called Lost Canyon of the Dead, and it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like it's a weird Western uh, combined with the Lost World trope, you know, where you sort of find this hidden valley of uh, of whatever. Um, in this case, it's, well, I don't want to say what it is. It's kind of a spoiler to say what it is, but, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I guess just on the subject of short stories, I had two I wanted to mention. So one is uh, Tim Pratt's story, Heart and Boot. Mm-hmm. which is a fantastical retelling of the story of this real-life pair of uh, Wild West outlaws. 
And it's really, really good. It was anthologized in uh, Best American Short Stories. Um, and you can listen to it. It was it appeared as episode 145 of the Podcastle podcast. So I highly recommend people check that out. And then I was going through all my reading, you know, all the books I've read to see if I could come up with any other weird Western stuff. And it hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me that this was a weird Western before, but I think it is. It's Karen Russell's story, Children's Reminiscences of the Westward Migration, which is about, uh, you know, it's like Oregon Trail. Uh, all these settlers are are going west in these wagon trains, except in this particular family, the father of the family is a minotaur, and so he's huh. personally pulling their wagon train. You know, he just sort of straps it to his head and pulls it. Uh, that I, sounds awesome. <laughs> I, no, I love I love that story. Wow! Oh man, I gotta check that out. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, before we get too far away from Tim Pratt, actually, one of his novels is kind of a weird western as well. Uh, he has a book called The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl. Um, it's actually his first novel. Um, and it's it's kind of a very weird Western because so there's there's Ranger Girl, which is a comic that takes pl- that that is in the book. So it's like the book is about a comic writer artist who creates this comic called, you know, Ranger Girl. And then uh, if I recall correctly, she actually ends up going into the world of the comic or something. And so like Ranger Girl is actually real. And but uh, so so Ranger Girl itself, the comic within the book is a weird Western. But then also the book itself is kind of a weird Western because. You know, <laughs> a by default, uh, if someone jumps into the world of a of a comic that's a weird western, then that kind of makes it also a weird western. So, um, so that one's pretty fun. Uh, but I mean, as far as novels go, um, I mean, I have to give a, a shout out to Territory by Emma Bull, um, and it's one that I didn't mention in my um, introduction, uh, probably because I didn't want to have to actually fess up to the fact that I, I couldn't get her into the book. Um, I, not for lack of trying, I try, I desperately tried to get Emma to write something because because Territory is amazing, but. Um, just didn't work out. And, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically, uh, the movie Tombstone, but with magic. Um, and that's really all you need to know. And it's amazing. And you should just go read it. Uh, but it, yeah, it's just, it just perfectly captures like everything that's awesome about, you know, the, the Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday story, but then like adds this layer of magic. And it just, uh, it's just, it's so great. And I mean, she's, she's a beautiful pro stylist. So, I mean, that really helps as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely that's one of the sort of modern day classics of the genre for sure. See, Rush, you have anything else you want to mention? Um, you know, the, the ones that come to mind are, are more recent for me. Um, it seems like recently there's been a, a few, you know, really great, wa- uh, weird Westerns that came out. Um, one of them isn't really technically a weird Western. There's a book called Liminal States by Zach Parson. And, uh, the first third of it, is basically it takes place in the West and there's some, I mean, it's definitely weird. There's some weird stuff going on through this. Um, and later on it shifts in time period more to like a noir setting and then to a futuristic setting. So it can't really, the whole book is not considered a weird Western, but, um, I really thought it was great. I reviewed it for tour.com, but, um, the Western parts, you know, were, were really exciting. Um, there's also a book called six gun tarot that came Mm. out, I think, last year or the year before, um, by R.S. Belcher. And I thought that was great. It was, it, you know, like all for me, what what has to work for a weird Western partially is that, you know, I have to kind of feel the setting, you know, the 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 sounds and the sights and, and it has to feel right. Um, and all of these books seem to have that. But um, this is just crammed with so many different things. There's angels, there's like, uh, you know, Lovecraftian monsters, you know, shapeshifters, uh, you know, steampunk mad scientists here and there, um, you know, uh, just all kinds of, of interesting, fantastical elements jammed into this story. 
I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, and there's a, a sequel coming out, I think called Shotgun Arcana, maybe hmm. this year. Yeah, um, good title. <laughs> yeah. And, and the interesting thing about Six Gun Tarot is that each chapter is named after a different card from the tarot. And it, hmm. you know, it starts off with this young boy traveling through the desert on his horse. And like, you know, they're both dehydrated and stumbling through. Um, and I thought, oh, this is going to be the story about this kid. But then it jumps around, um, around this, this town. Um, which ends up being significant. It's it's kind of like the way I, I I also wrote a review of this one, but um, it's kind of like you know, uh, Sunnydale from Buffy. Mm-hmm. It, it's like it's that kind of town, but just in the Wild West, and there's all this kind of craziness going on around it. Um, and I don't want to spoil anything about that. But um, and one that I haven't finished yet, but Felix Gilman's um, mm. The Half Made World, mm-hmm. uh, which also is is a good weird western so far i mean i i I pick these up with a little bit of skepticism because i guess you know i want it to be good um but so far the fiction that i've been reading has been so much better than you know obviously like the movies we mentioned um fiction in the comics i think are are some of the best you know stuff out there right now in terms of weird westerns Mm -hmm. Uh, i'll I'll throw out there i don't think we've mentioned sherry priest's uh clockwork century novels and those are uh, definitely good examples of this uh, they're, they're they're one of those cases where it's they're both steampunk and weird westerns, um, and you know a lot of a lot of weird westerns uh, sort of share some motifs with steampunk, but uh, but there's not always overlap. But hers are definitely both, um, and uh, you know those are really good. They have a lot of horror elements as well, so there's like zombies and that kind of thing. Can I just add a few more short stories? Um, Saladin Ahmed wrote a story called I think it's Mister Haji's Sunset Ride, which um, it's a nice little cute little not cute I mean short. But, um, you know, it infuses some uh, Islamic elements into the Wild West, which I've never seen done anywhere else before. Um, another story is Hangman by Aaron Cashier, which also appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Uh, Saladin's story and Aaron's story are both available for free online. Um, and then John, I think, I think there was a story in the Clockwork Jungle book that you edited a while back for Shimmer. It was Lou Anders, I think, where it had, it was a story about a guy who was, Chasing Runaway Trains. You remember that one? Uh, well, that was the uh, George Mann edited that issue of Shimmer. But oh, that's um, right, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't know if that if Lou Anders has that in there. He does have a, he did have sort of a post apocalyptic story in that adventure anthology Chris Roberson did a couple years ago, and it's sort of vaguely western esque. But um, yeah, I'm not sure about this one that you're talking about. Okay. Uh, but as far as other things I've edited besides Dead Man's Hand, actually, I, I did edit a couple um, stories that were weird westerns. Uh, Brooke Bolander has one in Lightspeed called uh, Her Words Like Hunting Vixen's Spring. Um, Lavi Tidhar has one in Fantasy called uh, Red Red Dawn, a chow mein western. Um, and that one's actually quite interesting because it's uh, it takes place in China, but it's 100 percent of western you know it's like even though even though you transplant it totally into a different location like that just like all the motifs and everything just transferred over perfectly and it just felt very authentic uh even though it's it's in this totally different setting um and that one's really fun just because it's like uh the magic is sort of drawn from uh like so basically stars or meteors or whatever like they sort of crash into the planet and they and with them brings um uh mana which powers the magic and so uh, they go mining for it. And, and so they kind of have. And so that's sort of what drives the the, 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 the sort of Western motifs there. Um, and so that one's really great. And then um, Laura Ann Gilman had one called Crossroads in fantasy also. Uh, and then, you know, I got her to write a story for Dead Man's Hand as well. So. 
Um, yeah, all three of those are all online for free. And then, of course, uh, uh, Dave mentioned that uh, I published uh, Raj's story, Card Sharp, in uh, The Way of the Wizard, uh, which you can listen to online at Podcastle. Um, I don't think the text is online anywhere, but uh, you can listen to it. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, and then obviously The Dark Tower by Stephen King would be another huge example of a weird Western. I've actually only read the first book, and mm -hmm. uh, it, nothing about it really motivated me to go on, although everyone says it gets a lot better with book two. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was really struck. I think it's in his introduction to that where he just talks about reading the Lord or Lord of the Rings and saying, oh my God, I want to do something like this. And then later on going to a, I think a Sergio Leone Western movie and just seeing the mm -hmm. gigantic cowboy faces on the big screen and realizing, oh, I can just do like a Lord of the Rings style story, but using this iconography rather than, uh, you know, European folklore. Um, and so, and I was really, I, I was really intrigued by that project. Uh, so I'd be curious for people, I think John, you've read the whole thing, right? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what do you, do you think he is, is the dark tower sort of the weird Western to beat at this point or? Huh. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I think the gunslinger, the first book is, uh, I think it's pretty great. I mean, I, I, and I, you know, obviously I went on to read all the books and, and that one by far is the one that feels most like a weird Western. Uh, the other books sort of subsequently go off into other directions where it becomes more like a portal fantasy thing. And then there's like, you know, the fate of the world and all this other stuff. But it becomes much less a weird Western because it, it basically takes the gunslinger out of that weird West setting and puts him into like sort of contemporary New York or contemporary Earth anyway. So it's still kind of a weird Western because you have that that character there that's all along. Um, and they do occasionally revisit it at various points in the books, like uh, book four sort of delves back into into rolling the gunslinger's past. and. Uh, there's some short stories like uh, there's the Little Sisters of Illyria, which appeared in the Legends anthology. Uh, you know, that one's definitely a weird Western. But I mean, that sort of takes place entirely in that weird West setting. Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like I, it's hard to say that it's the weird Western to beat because of that. I mean, I, I love it um, for what it is uh, in those in, in the terms you're 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 setting out there. I don't know that I would put it in that in that way. Uh, I, to me, I would have to say Territory by Emma Bull probably is my number one, um, mm. you know, favorite novel that I've read or, or you know, in, uh, if we're talking novels and separating short stories out. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, so Dark Tower, it's great. But, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to hard to pigeonhole it into that one genre. Ron, Ron Howard tried for many months, years, and for all I know, still is. I think Imagine still is the rights to do it, to do the Dark Tower movies. I mm. think they wanted to do it as a trilogy. A buddy of mine who I worked with at Marvel. Uh, was on the art team for that. Mm -hmm. But that was a while back. Yeah, there were so many rumors about that. And I was like, oh, my God, like <laughs> it, it was so close. It was like HBO was going to make it into a TV series. It's like, that's the way to do it, man. You can't make a seven book series into any kind of number of movies. I mean, unless you're going to make, you know, seven or more movies. And, and and those books are all and like most of those books are really huge. So, no, man, you got to make it an HBO series. That would have been the thing to do. And I just broke my heart when that fell apart. Well, everybody's looking, well, particularly Warner Brothers is looking for the next Harry Potter, right? I mean, yeah. that was that was a seven film, eight film, however long it was, series. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what they were thinking. Right. I agree with you, John, though. I don't, I think, you know, it starts out as a weird Western, but then it just becomes something completely different. It's almost like the, he just takes that one character and pushes him into different directions. Um, so, so yeah, I don't think of it, which is funny because everyone brings that up and I think, yeah, you know, it has those elements, but you know, one book out of the whole series to me doesn't color the whole thing. I think, you know, territory is a great choice as well. Um, or the Lansdale stuff. Oh, I guess Lansdale stuff is short stories, but yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, the the, the first book, The Gunslinger, is, is just it's one of the things that definitely got me interested in, in westerns uh, altogether. Uh, but I mean, specifically, even just that first line, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. And it's like, I, I read that however many years ago. It's like that just it was like instantly tattooed on my brain. And I just love it. I just like love that entire opening. Um, and, and, you know, the subsequent lines that follow that. But it's just, it's just, it's funny. It's like I, I went to go jot it down and I just like just knew it off the top of my head. I didn't have to look it up or anything. Um, and uh, I just always love that, you know. Those, it's like so sort of iconic the the those two characters you know chasing after each other like that and and uh, I just loved how it set the stage for everything to come. I don't know if this is true, but I, I had a friend years ago who was a huge Stephen King fan, and she told me that when he wrote The Gunslinger, that he, <laughs> like the the way she told it anyway was that he just went to a cabin in the woods and dropped acid and wrote that book in like a weekend <laughs> or something, uh, and that's why it it's sort of so hallucinogenic is because he was literally on acid when he wrote it. <laughs> Does anyone know if that's true or not? Yes, I was there. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's true. I've heard that as well, though. Uh, and I don't think it was from you. I think I've I've, I've also heard something like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, you know, it was funny, though, because one of the reasons I actually even read The Dark Tower was because, you know, uh, my first job out of college, I, I got a job at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And, uh, and I was an assistant, uh, assistant editor there for many years. And, you know, one of the magazine's great claims to fame was the original stories that comprised um, the Gunslinger book. Uh, you know, it's actually it's a it's actually a series of five novelettes uh, strung together, which the, in which they call a fix up. You know, when you turn several short stories that are connected and you turn them into a novel. Um, so FNSF actually published those stories originally in the magazine. And so um, I was like, OK, well, when I was trying to educate myself about the history of the magazine, I was, I was like, oh, well, I should check those out. And then and so uh, that was really what uh, inspired me to, to read them. Uh, but 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 like I was saying, uh, uh, the the gunslinger kind of made me want to go check out other westerns um, in general as well. And so um, you know, uh, around that time, like you know, sort of early two thousands, uh, I was um, I just really dove into into westerns like head first. Like I mean, I I had seen and loved Unforgiven, but then um, I hadn't really followed up on that love uh, until after I got inspired by The Dark Tower. Um, and then so I just I I rented like tons and tons of westerns and and just you know and just you know, gobbled them up and, you know, mostly on film, you know, I, I didn't really go and read old, uh, old, uh, actual novel Westerns, but I mean, I, I just went and saw like almost every, every Western I could get my hands on. Um, and, uh, so that, that sort of ended up paying dividends later on when I ended up doing this book. Well, actually, I mean, like speaking of this book, why don't we, uh, why don't we talk about that a little bit more? Um, <laughs> so why don't we, uh, why don't you guys talk about your stories that you wrote? Uh, so Fred, why don't you tell us about Never Sleeps? Well, uh, Never Sleeps is a fantasy western set in a world where uh, magic got unleashed around the end of the 19th century. Uh, it's it's very, and then the 19th century sort of froze in time. So the story sort of technically takes place in 2014, but everything in 2014 looks like it did in, eight, in the 1890s. Uh, uh, science is illegal. Um, and magic sort of rules the land, but there's a, a group of people called the White City trying to uh, bring science back. And the story takes place on a train. It's it's a tra I wanted to do it sort of a train robbery story set in this milieu. So one of the members of the White City, uh, who's a gunslinger, who wears an outfit called the Chrysalis that keeps him uh, immune from magic, has to bust out Nikola Tesla, who's one of the descendants of exiled science criminal. Uh, Nikolai Tesla, and uh, 
much violence and mayhem ensues. Oh, and uh, and the bad guys, they're being pursued by the Pinkertons, uh, whose famous slogan from the 19th century was, the, was uh, we never sleep, and the, and the colloquial term for them now in this world is the never sleeps. Yeah, and they're, and they're, they're, they're these sort of weird monsters with eyeball heads, too. Right. When they're doing their magic, otherwise they all look like kind of zombies wearing bowler hats and, <laughs> and mutton chops and, and tweed suits. Um, and, uh, I don't know. So John, what did you, uh, talk about that story and how awesome it is? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I was just, I was blown away by that, by the world building in that story. It's just like, I wanted to like, just stay there and, and like read more stories about, uh, that world. Uh, so, you know, and, and uh, as a result, I got Fred to actually write another story set in that world. Um, you know, and that's appearing in the May issue of Lightspeed. Uh, it's called Willful Weapon. Um, and, uh, it'll be out on the website, uh, next week. Um, but, uh, and, and so that story, it's like, it's not a direct continuation of those, of the, of the story that you read in Dead Man's Hand. So I still want to get some of that. So I'm going to have to twist your arm for that, Fred. Oh yeah. Oh uh, no, I totally love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's like one of those things. It's like, Thank oh you. man, I was just, I, I, it just fired my imagination so much. And I just, um, I, I just, I like, like, lo- I loved it so much. And so, um, yeah, everyone's definitely got to at least read that one. Even if you don't read the rest of the book, you got to read that one. It's well, the, and it, Raj's too, of course. But. It's the next, <laughs> to la- it's the next to last one. So you got to go all the way to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I swear it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, John, I will totally write a third story. I didn't I didn't realize when you asked me, I, I guess I'm an idiot. It never huh. occurred to me, like, you would actually want those specific characters to continue. But but yes, I will do that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, promise. no worries. I mean, I, I, I was just happy to have something else with that milieu because, I mean, it's so, it's like I said, the world building is just so great. But, um, but I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I just, I, I, I would love to see more from those actual characters as well. So a Willful Weapon, the Lightspeed story, is an Eastern Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of set in the milieu of gangs of New York, and it's about uh, it's about an elf gangster um, who arrives in New York City from Ireland, and the uh, the sort of underworld he finds himself in in Manhattan. Uh, all right, cool. And, and Raj, why don't you tell us about Secondhand? Sure. Um, it's it's basically a continuation of sorts of uh, the card sharp story that was in John's Way, the Wizard anthology. So the the Card Sharp itself is basically a revenge tale, but the conceit is that Quentin Ketterly, who's the main character, um, he gets this deck of cards, which is basically a deck of magic cards, or, or rather that the cards can be used to various effects, but basically once you work through your card deck, each, you know, each spell, each effect uses up one card, and once those cards are gone, you're done. Um, so at the end of Card Sharp, uh, or not the end, but basically it's set up that, that the old man who gives him the cards asks him to go bring another set to his son who, who's estranged. So in second hand, we pick up a little bit after that with Quentin and Hiram, who's this guy's son. Um, and they're traveling together. And basically the idea is that they're trying to find out more about the cards and looking for other people who, who might know about them since they're, they're kind of rare at this point. Um, and they get kind of pulled into this, um, this issue, I suppose. But I mean, basically I, after Card Sharp, I kind of envisioned a a trilogy of stories, um, uh, to tell Quentin's story. And so this is kind of the middle. Um, and, but I also wanted to kind of explain a bit more about the cards or, or at least add to the kind of mythology behind it. So, um, 
that's also what happens, although I don't want to spoil anything. But basically, it's, it's them going on this journey to, uh, to look for more information and running into somebody else. Yeah, no, this is another one that I just really love the world building on. And I mean, obviously, that's one of the reasons why I asked Raj to write another story set in that milieu. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I just love that idea of the cards and like, so each card, like, depending on what the face of it is, uh, and what the suit is, uh, you know, they have different uh, power to them. And so like, you know, and but you only can use each one once. So like, you know, you have to decide, well, is this a is this a level five spell? Or do I need a level six spell or level seven or whatever? Um, and then you know, the different suits have different effects. So like heart, uh, the hearts, I think were sort of life force related uh, if i'm if i'm remember, remembering yeah. correctly and yeah um and then some of the other ones are like you know more for for damaging people and that kind of thing and so yeah just so 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 cool and uh and i just love seeing you know that getting explored more because it's like it's such a huge canvas that you can play with uh yeah and it really ties in really nicely with the metaphor it's like of, of the gambling sort of imagery because in any situation you're like oh like you know i could definitely win if i play a 10 or whatever but maybe i could get away with just playing a seven and save mm-hmm. my 10 for another day. And so you're mm-hmm. constantly sort of living on the edge and having to, you know, having to take chances and risks so, to, so as not to waste your more valuable cards. Yeah. And, and I, I think in the first one, there's a mention that, you know, they can try for certain effects and it might not work. You know, basically, um, you know, if, if it, it, it can be a very little or interpretation. So if you want to, I don't know, create four, floating swords or something you could use the four card but like you know you can try for effects that you might not be able to get um and you still use up the card so it it is a very tenuous at times i guess way of using things um but yeah yeah and i guess raj you told us at some points in the past that you were working on a novel set in this world is that still in the cards (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm still working on it. I think, you know, I, I think I said this last time, but the difficulty with um, working on a novel length is that there's a lot more research that goes into it. You know, you can have a short story set in some town and not have to actually figure out travel and things like that. And um, a lot of this is is doing research into, you know, just even what, say, Kansas of that time period was like and, you know, what year are we in and things like that. And I think, John, you asked me at one point in time, you know, what year is this? And mm-hmm. that was something I had to work out when I was yeah. working the novel, especially because, you know, I want to, uh, part of my, um, the fun about writing a novel is that I get to take people from place to place. And, you know, I, I want to visit some of the key locations, you know, like a, like right. a tombstone or a, or a deadwood. Um, but you have to be in the right time period. So like mm-hmm. to set up this kind of overarching story, um, you know, it takes kind of more precise, figuring out yeah um, not to mention you know what kind of clothing they're wearing and the the mm-hmm. the you know exactly how you break a horse that was something i had to look mm-hmm. up the other day so um yeah yeah one of the reasons i i asked raj and the other authors to uh to to tell me what year it takes place in is because in the book i wanted to have each story sort of begin with a time where you know with the with the year so it sort of sets each story uh at, an, at its appropriate place in the west because you know the the west the Western stories sort of have this long range from, you know, like a certain period in the in the 1800s all the way up into the sort of early 1900s where and, and so I just wanted to have it right at the start of every story to let uh, let everybody know where, uh, when and where it takes place. Um, and I think, Fred, like your yours actually has the most interesting one, because 
like you said, yours takes place in 2014. And so it's like, it didn't, it wouldn't really make sense necessarily to have us have that there. So like, you know, your line says something like, you know, 192 years after the awakening or something like that. Right. Right. So I thought that was cool. I had to twist my brain into pretzels to try to figure out the best way to phrase that. That wasn't a spoiler, but yet wasn't completely incomprehensible. Right, right. You know, I, I thought it worked really well. But cool. um, yeah, I mean, and I I, uh, I just I, I really like having that uh, setting the stage for each story so that, you know, you know when you are in time going into it, um, even if uh, once you get into it, it's like it's not like what you were expecting if you know history, you know, because of all the weird elements. Right, right. All right, cool. So we're pretty short on time here, so we should start wrapping this up. I guess just finally, Fred, do you have any other projects you're working on or anything else you just want to let people know about? Uh, Yeah, nothing really in the uh, weird uh, Western genre. I mean, obviously, there's the um, uh, there's the story Willful Weapon, which is on the ebook version of the May 14 issue of uh, Lightspeed right now, but it'll be on the website on the 20th of May. So I hope folks can check that out. Uh, and always you can see me on the comic stands doing books like Conan and uh, Magnus and Archer and Armstrong and uh, I'm sure many I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. Oh, uh, for free online, folks can go to projectblacksky.net. That's a uh, horror science fiction uh, superhero uh, free webcomic I'm doing with a bunch of artists through Dark Horse Comics. So if you have some spare time, check out projectblacksky.net. All right, great. And John, any final words about Dead Man's Hand or anything else you want to mention? Uh, I mean, basically, you know, if you want to go to johnjosephadams.com slash dead dash man's dash hand, or if you just go to my website, you'll find a link to the to the Dead Man's Hand website. And, uh, you know, you can go check out some interviews with the authors and you can read some free samples and you can, uh, you know, read some whole stories and that kind of thing. So um, if you want to learn more about it, you can do that. Um, and also, uh, if you pop over there, you can find a link to that to Huffington Post piece that we referenced, which I think is pretty interesting if you're interested in um, learning about other weird westerns, because uh, the, the the contributors all you know mentioned different uh, different things uh, that uh, that they thought were their favorites in in, in the genre. So um, I think that's worth checking out. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, thanks so much, guys, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So thanks again to Fred Van Lenty, Rajan Khanna, and John Joseph Adams for joining us as guest geeks. And big thanks again to Mary Robinette Kowal for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Fragtor in Sweden, and Dan CQ and Aaron vs. Dracula in the U.S. Aaron vs. Dracula writes, There are way too many podcasts out there to try them all and wading through countless numbers of them to find something you can listen to every day is a daunting task. But if you like science fiction, fantasy, or writing and reading in general, all presented with a dash of comedic wit, a sprinkle of pop culture, and real insight from people who are involved in the industry, both as professionals and fans, your search is over. I've gone through the entire backlog and there is never a dull episode. It's just as fun to hear small talk about Robocop or Alien as it is to hear famous authors of classic and recent sci-fi and fantasy get into deep conversations about significant literature. I turn to Geek's Guide to populate my reading list, to pass time during my commute, and to keep up to date on what's new in TV, movies, and books. Great job, guys. So thank you, Aaron vs. Dracula, for that great review. Special thanks as well to all of our crowdfunders, including David Taylor, crowdfunder number 75, and Charles Sickles, crowdfunder number 77. 
Also, the biggest thank you of all time to my new favorite person in the world, Bruno Onkir, crowdfunder number 76, who just signed up to give us a gigantic $50 a month via PayPal. Yes, that's $50 a month. So thank you, Bruno. That's incredibly kind and is going to give us just a huge, huge boost. We're always sort of thinking about ways we could expand the show in terms of bringing in more people, producing more segments, maybe going weekly at some point in the future. In order to realistically consider anything along those lines, the podcast would need to be bringing in a lot more money than it currently is. But amazing listeners like Bruno Onkir make me think that maybe that's something we could build toward. So if you enjoy the show and want to see us release more content, please consider stopping by our crowdfunding page at geeksguideshow.com and signing up. If just 5 or 10% of our regular listeners were contributing a few bucks a month, it would be enough money for us to massively expand the show from what we're currently doing. I'd also like to congratulate my very talented girlfriend Stephanie on her new job doing audiobook marketing at Penguin Random House. Her first post there just went live and may be of interest to Geek's Guide listeners. The post is called It's Time for Some Time Travel and highlights two time travel-themed audiobooks that are free to download this week only. The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and Warp, the Reluctant Assassin by Owen Colfer. To learn more, visit Stephanie's website at grossmanmarketingpublicity.com. And speaking of free audiobooks, our producer John Joseph Adams is giving away 10 free audiobook downloads of his recent anthology, The End is Nigh. To enter, just send us an email at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com, telling us how you discover the podcast and what you like or don't like about it. Ten winners will be selected at random and announced at the end of our next episode. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.